Well, we come now to our catechism lesson today. If you recall, last Lord's Day, uh, we began to look at the Ten Commandments, and I preached on the First Commandment. And you know, when I was outlining my sermon for last week, I had really two points that I wanted to get to, but I only ended up getting to one. If you remember, the first commandment was, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And we spent our time looking at the words before me. Well, the other part that I wanted to look at were the words, no other gods. But I ran out of time, so I thought, well, I'll just have to save it for another round, some other time, maybe preach on it some, some time down the road. But all of this past week, I just could not get my mind off those words. And as I'm driving down to Miami, into the panhandle, I just spent hours thinking through this, so I didn't want to pass it up. And so for today's lesson, I want to consider those words, you shall have no other gods. And if you would, use your imagination a little bit. Just imagine you're in the big rig with me. You're not driving. I'm driving, of course. You don't have a CDL license. But we're traveling down the Florida Turnpike, and I just want to take you through my thought process that I had going on this week with these words, no other gods. Well, the first question that came to mind was this. What exactly are these other gods? And the reason I was asking myself that is because we know that Scripture tells us over and over again that there's only one God. Psalm 86.10 says, For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Isaiah 44.6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. In Isaiah 41, God summons the idols to come to court and says, provide the evidence, the proof that you're gods. He says in Isaiah 41, 21, set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what, what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to become hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. In abomination is he who chooses you. Paul, when he addresses the issue to those in Corinth about whether they could eat food offered to idols, said this, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has uh, no real existence and that there is no God but one. And so clearly other gods do not exist. And yet the first commandment tells us not to have them. So what that says to me then is that while these other gods do not actually exist, we can manufacture them. We can create them. We can create gods out of things or out of people. This is why Paul goes on to say, for although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom all, are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist. 
There are many things that are not in reality gods, but we call them gods. We treat them as gods. We serve them as gods. And that's what the first commandment is telling us not to do. Well, then the next question that came to mind was this. What are some of these things that we often treat as gods? And you can spend hours naming off all the things. But one of the things that just immediately came to my mind, because I've often, sometimes you've heard this phrase, you look at a couple, whether they're married, dating, whatever, and someone will observe them and say, man, she, he just worships the ground she walks on. You know, or something like that. You've probably heard that expression. And so I thought, well, we certainly make an idol out of people. And as I'm thinking about that, Jesus' words come to mind. Luke 14. There Jesus said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now that scripture really got the ball rolling for me. Because I thought, man, what does that mean? Is Jesus really telling us to hate our fathers? To hate our mothers? Is he really telling me personally to hate my wife and my son and my three daughters? Surely not. I mean, after all, we're commanded to love one another. In fact, in Ephesians 5, Paul explicitly tells me as a husband to love my wife as Christ loved the church. So what is he getting at here? Well, there's another scripture that came to mind. I think parallel sheds some light on this. In Matthew 10, we read this. Do not think that I come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever, and here's the key, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now this is really starting to help us understand this, I think. It's beginning to answer those questions. Notice Jesus here assumes that you'll love your father. He knows that you'll love your mother. He knows that you'll love your son and your daughters. But he also says this, you can't love them more than you love me. It's okay to love your father. It's okay to love your mother, your sister, your brother, your husband, your wife. I'll even throw in there since we've got some young folks in here. It's okay to love your boyfriend and your girlfriend. It's okay. In fact, you're commanded to love one another. But here's the problem. Jesus says there's a point at which your love can become idolatrous, ungodly. So I want you to imagine this. I want you to imagine this line. And underneath this line, you have the word love. And let's just get real practical here. Let's just say this line represents your love that you have for a boyfriend or a girlfriend. 
Now, it's okay for you young ladies to love a young man. It's okay for you young men to pursue and love a young lady. But somewhere in all of this, Jesus says there's a line that you do not cross in your love. Because when you cross that line, your love becomes idolatry. And now you're not even worthy to be a disciple of Christ. Here then comes the million dollar question. When do you know that you've crossed that line? How do you know that your love has went from being a healthy, true, legitimate love to being an unhealthy, sick, and ungodly idolatry? How do you know? I think there are a lot of people, even many within the church, don't know how to answer that question. And I say that because when you think about it, the, the key, I think, to answering that question is you've got to get down to defining what love is, right? And the world, they're all over the place. Unfortunately, that's crept into our churches. Love has become this mushy, squishy, feely, subjective thing. Love has become, well, it's whatever I feel it is. And what may be love for you may not be love for me, vice versa. And if you have that idea of love, then to ask the question, when have you crossed that line, becomes a meaningless question because there is no line. There are no boundaries. Love's just whatever you want it to be. Love is love. I get so sick of hearing that. <laughs> but even then, deep down inside, we know that's not true. They know it's not true. And I'll come back to that in a minute. But for Jesus, love has boundaries. Love has lines to be drawn. For Jesus, your love for that boyfriend or that girlfriend can reach a level or a type that turns that love into hate, that turns that love into idolatry. So again, the million-dollar question, how do we know when we've crossed that line? It seems like a difficult question to answer, doesn't it? If you want to think of it this way, imagine this. You see two couples, man and woman over here, a man and woman over here. You're observing them both. The man over here, man, he's passionate about his woman. He loves her, spends time with her, thinks about her all the time. You look over here, this guy's the same way. He's passionate, he loves her, spends time with her, talking to her. But God looks at him and says, that's idolatry and this isn't. Well, what's the difference? Seems like a tough question, isn't it? Or is it? And if you had asked me that question to me 10 years ago, I don't think I'd have gave you a great answer. But as I'm pondering this now, the thought occurred to me that, you know, to answer this question, you really need to understand just what exactly love is. So what is love? Well, Pastor JP is actually going to come talk, preach to us about this today. And by the way, I had no idea he was going to do that. We were on the phone, I think, on Friday, and I'm, I'm sharing this stuff with him. And he's talking to me, and it's like, well, the providence of God just works out. He's going to have a lot more stuff to say. But just for the sake of our lesson, just think about this for a second. What, according to Scripture, is a very important element to love? Well, one that comes to mind that I've learned since being here 
is law and obedience. We've said this over and over again at this church. Paul writes to the Romans, chapter 13, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has, what? Fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. In Matthew 22, a lawyer came to Jesus and tried to, to test him. He asked him a question, teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like, like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments, love God, love your neighbor, love, depend all the law and the prophets. All of the law is summed up in loving God and loving your neighbor. You want to know how to love God? Obey his word. You want to know how to love your neighbor? Obey his word towards your neighbor. Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will talk about it a lot, nothing else? No. You will keep my commandments. And so law and obedience are essential ingredients to love. So then I got to thinking, we're still traveling down the turnpike here, putting up with crazy people. So I got to thinking about the various relationships that I have with people, my wife, my son, my daughters, my parents, my friends at church, my employees, co-workers. Is it true that obedience, or if you want to word it this way, Doing things for people is essential to those relationships. Well, yeah, of course it is. I mean, just try locking yourself up in your room, cut yourself off from everybody and see how your relationships go with people. It's not going to work. In our various relationships, we do things for people. People do things for us. There's this element of obedience, serving and that's when it hit me. That's when the light bulb turned on. You want to know when you've crossed that line. Do you want to know when that love that you have for a guy or for a girl, or for whoever, has went from being a love that is legitimate to being idolatry? You can know that you've crossed that line when in order for you to maintain that relationship with that person, you have to disobey God or neglect the duties he requires of you. That's when you've crossed that line. Think about it. I mean, let's get real practical here. Let's go back to the boyfriend-girlfriend scenario. Ladies, imagine you're with your boyfriend. You're hanging out. You love him. He loves you. And then one night he turns to you and says, Hey, you know I love you, right? Yeah. Well, my parents aren't home, so let's go back in the bedroom and you know, you know what? Now, you know what God says about that. It's not rocket science. It's not hard. God says don't do it, but you're hesitating. And he's picking up on it. 
And then what does he say to you? Hey, you love me, right? Yeah. Well, then if you love me, you'll what? You'll do this. See, even an unbeliever knows that you can't separate obedience from love. And then what's the temptation going through your mind? I love, I do love him. And if I don't do this, what's he going to think? He's going to think I, I hate him. I don't like him. But understand the reality of what's really going on here. He's not loving you. What he's really doing is he's setting himself up as God. And he's demanding obedience to his word, to his law. And if you go through with that, what have you done? You've accepted his claim as God. And now you're an idolater. Beloved, law in obedience can never be divorced from our relationships. That's never the question. The real question is, whose law are you going to obey? And whose law will you obey, or in whose law you will obey will reveal who your God is. Ideally, in a healthy, godly relationship, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your friends, whoever, would be operating in harmony with God's law. And they would never ask you to violate his word, never ask you to neglect duties that God requires of you. But when he or she does ask you to violate and neglect his word, and you comply in order to keep that relationship going, that's when you know you have forsaken God and made an idol for yourself. And friends, I have news for you. God hates rivals. The day will come if you truly belong to him, if you truly are a child of God, and you have idolized the person to the point that you will neglect your duties and violate God's commandments in order to keep that relationship healthy, quote-unquote, the day will come when God is going to remove that idol from your life. And that scares me, because I don't know what that looks like. It could be death, it could be divorce, it could be a nasty breakup, it could be all sorts of things. But he's not going to allow you to continue in that idolatry. And so you know it's a scary thought, but at the same time, I think this is very helpful and encouraging to me. Because it means that I don't have to resort to all this silly, mushy, subjective notions of love. And as a result, be stumbling in the dark, not knowing what am I supposed to do in all these relationships, in all these different scenarios. You can know and understand what love is. You can know what to do. And guess what? It's all here. It's in his word. It's in his law. It's in his commandments. And so I want to encourage you, especially you young folks, as you're getting older and you're pursuing these relationships and, and such, the best possible thing you could be doing right now is to take the larger catechism question on the Ten Commandments and study and meditate on all these duties and prohibitions that the law requires. Study all the scripture references that they include. 
so that as you fill your mind up more and more with what is required and what is prohibited by you, you'll know better what to do when that pressure does come from a guy or a girl or a friend, and you can avoid the idolatry. You'll have a very clear direction from God in knowing when you need to step away and when you don't. Now, it won't be easy. It'll be tough. In fact, the other person will interpret your stepping away or your refusal to debate to obey them as hatred. Well, he hates me. I think that's what Jesus was getting at in Luke 14. Jesus wasn't telling us to hate everybody. What he was saying was that when a person, whoever it may be, father, mother, wife, children, brother, sister, boyfriend, girlfriend, whoever, when any of these people pressure you to disobey God's commands in order to keep that relationship healthy in their eyes, then know that disobeying them in order to honor God will come off as hatred of them. But if that's the case, so be it. That's the cost of being a disciple of Christ. Jesus said, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What is the cross? It's a sign of rejection. It's a sign of hatred, even a sign of death. Jesus says you've got to be willing to embrace that. Embrace rejection, embrace hatred, embrace even death to follow me. But you know what? It's worth every bit of it. But then Jesus would go on to say, whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. So that was my thought process. And I couldn't pass up sharing that because like I said, I think it's just extremely helpful. You know, we live in a world that's so mushy and subjective and you just don't know what to think, what you're supposed to do. Yet God has clearly revealed his will as I, as I spoke to you know, a few weeks ago. And so I hope that encourages you. I hope it gives you some direction. And I hope it challenges you. I hope it challenges you to study his words, to study his law. So that you know what you need to do in these situations.